when you read this, this is not kind of what I just referred to as the situation that we all live in prior to coming to Christ. It's not your typical being led by the prince of the power of the air like, like we all were prior to salvation. Um, these kinds of demon possessions, it's not simply uh, the typical being influenced by Satan or the demons, but this is an instance of, of actually being indwelt by a demon. And when you read through the Gospels, especially even in the book of Acts, when you see all these instances in the Bible with, with Jesus, with his, in, with his apostles, when you see where these demons actually possess people, the, the demon actually takes over the body, takes over the mind, takes over the voice. Um, it is one of the most, if you were to be in the presence of this, it would be one of the most terrifying realities that I think we as humans can experience is to have a demon take over your, your body and your mind and, and to be using you. Acts chapter 16, I've entitled this sermon today, Some Household Salvations. Some Household Salvations. I'm just going to read Acts chapter 16, verse 30, 31. And then we'll pray and get started. Acts 16.30 says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray. Well, Father, our desire, Lord, is for all of our households to be saved. Lord, we pray that you would use fathers, mothers, use the brothers and sisters of this church. Lord, use the, the reading of your word here at church, at home. Lord, use our prayers, use children's moments. Lord, use the songs. Lord, use all these means of grace, Lord, to, to save every soul in our families, Lord. This is our utmost desire, Lord. We thank you that we have in your word these pictures, Lord, of entire families being saved, Lord. It's surely meant to be encouraging to us, to give us hope, Lord. So we pray that you would work this same grace we're going to read about today, Lord, and in all of our families, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I think you're all aware, we've been going through the book of Acts whenever it's my turn to speak, and we've, we've dove into Paul's second missionary journey now. If you remember, I entitled the last sermon, A Rocky Start, because... As Paul attempted to start out on the second missionary journey, he had that conflict with his beloved brother Barnabas concerning taking John Mark with him. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. The apostle Paul didn't. It caused quite the conflict and division to where Barnabas took John Mark. They went on their own missionary endeavor. We don't 
hear or see anything from that. And uh, a man named, a brother named Silas ends up taking, in essence, Barnabas's spot. And so Paul and Silas begin the second missionary journey. And the intent of that, as Paul said, was to uh, encourage the churches that they planted on the first trip. So Paul and Silas take off, begin the journey, and they very quickly, as we saw last time, picked up a couple of brothers to join them. That was the brothers Timothy and the author of the book of Luke, uh, book of Acts, Luke himself. So now there's four brothers, quite the formidable group if you think about it, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And this group are, are heading into Macedonia now. I mean, Paul said, let's go encourage the brothers for the churches that we planted. They've done that, but and they don't stop there in Galatia. They continue off into Macedonia, a whole new area. As I pointed out last time, they're entering modern-day Europe with the gospel. And what we're going to see today is a couple of these rather well-known kind of famous uh, people in, in biblical characters, you have Lydia getting saved, you have the Philippian jailer getting saved, but these passages are, are in essence kind of famous because it's not just Lydia who gets saved, it's not just the Philippian jailer, but their entire households are saved and baptized in these passages. And so there's a whole lot actually to get to Um, In this section that I'm trying to bite off, we're going to try to work down all the way to verse 40 to include Lydia and the Philippian jailer's household, salvations and baptisms. The text moves really quick, so I'm going to move really quick. Um, The text is is some of the more exciting texts in the book of Acts. Um, I've had some of Shirley's coffee, so I'm ready to go. I mean, I'm good for like three hours. I don't know if you guys are ready. But let's, let's begin in verse 11. Here it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now, notice the we there. I reminded you guys last time. This is part of the we section of Acts. So Luke, Luke's including himself as he writes here. He says, We made a direct vi- uh, voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we, rem- and we remained in this city for some days. So they come to Philippi. We're familiar with Philippi and the letter Paul will write to the Philippians. And it's interesting, as Luke says, that Philippi is a leading city. It's interesting with it being a leading city that... For some reason, somehow, uh, there doesn't seem to even be a synagogue in Philippi because we know from Paul's uh, record, first place he goes when he enters a city to preach the gospel is the uh, synagogue. He looks for a synagogue. He starts preaching to the Jews first where the word of God is already there. But Paul doesn't have a synagogue to preach in and the commentators kind of guess as to why this might be. It might be just the simple fact that we moved all the way, the gospel's now going all the way to Macedonia, modern day Europe. It's moved so far from Israel that maybe it's just, it's getting so far away from uh, Israel that it's, it's far distance from uh, Judaism and, and the 
Synagogues are far and few between at this point, but for whatever reason, there doesn't appear to be a synagogue in Philippi. And so Paul has to come up with kind of like a plan B for uh, spreading the gospel here. And so in verse 13, uh, we're going to get kind of Paul's plan B, which as we of course know, uh, our plans B are always God's plan A. And this is going to lead to the first convert in Europe. So let me pick up in verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And so purple goods are, are clothes that the wealthy wore. If Lydia's selling the purple clothes, she most likely is wealthy as well, probably very well off. It also says here uh, that she was a worshiper of God. That's kind of a technical term. She was a, a God-fearer is the way other translations can call it, like Cornelius was. This is a, a Gentile who, who believes in Yahweh, who believes in the God of the Old Testament. And so Paul and these missionaries, they're preaching the word to this, this group of women who are gathered down by the river for prayer. In verse 14 goes on here, it shows us that the preaching of the word, the word was not alone, but the Spirit of God accompanied the preaching of the word. Verse 14 goes on to say, concerning Lydia, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her, whole, and, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Now, obviously, I'm going to hit on that second part of verse 14. Um, What did it say there that the Lord did to this woman's heart as Paul was speaking? It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. And with that language, I know, you know, what you're all thinking You're thinking, how could God do something like that? How could God violate her free will and act upon her heart like that, right? God's a gentleman, after all. Well, the theological term for what's happening here, God opening up her heart to listen to the Apostle Paul, the theological term is, it's it's speaking of regeneration. It's speaking of when God does this work to the human heart. It's, it's the grace of God. This is what he does when he's saving one of his elect. God opens up her heart. He graciously opens up her heart to hear the words that Paul's speaking. That's not the only thing God had to do here. Remember the, the steps, the, the first step in this whole process, if you recall, is that God sovereignly directed Paul and these missionaries to go to Macedonia. If you remember, he gave Paul that, uh, that vision in the night, that, that man in the vision saying, come and help us. Obviously, um, calling for the gospel to be brought to Macedonia. And 
The second thing, God brought that gospel through these missionaries to these women. And now for this, for this woman, Lydia, and, and also for her family as well, he does the necessary work of changing the heart so that she's able to listen, so that she's able to respond. Um, that, that leads to the very natural question, a, a very appropriate question, uh, an obvious question in a sense of why does God need to change the heart? Why does God even need to do this? Well, the answer is because of the way the Bible describes the human heart in our natural state. I'm just going to read off this little laundry list of verses here that describe the natural state of of humans. In Romans chapter 8, It says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 1 says that we are suppressing the truth of God in our unrighteousness. John chapter 6 says it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Again in John 6 No one can come to me, Jesus says. No one is able to come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So all of these texts just speak to the reality that God has to change the human heart if we're going to believe in the gospel. In our natural state, we simply cannot, nor do we want to come to Jesus. We love the world. We love our sin. We love ourselves. We're not looking to lose our lives for Christ's sake. And if, I mean, we can all think back to prior to our regeneration, prior to coming to Christ, just compared to how we think and receive the gospel now, there was, a, there was an obvious deadness there. There was an obvious lack of life. If you're not yet converted, this has to ring true with you how the things you hear at church just don't affect you as the Bible says that they really should. This is a, a reality in the Bible that's proven true by our experience. We see this reality play, play out. So God in his sovereign grace does this work for this woman, Lydia. He opens up her heart. He does the necessary work in Lydia's heart. Now, what about this language in verse 15? This, it says that the whole household was baptized. The whole household was baptized. Now, I'm, I'm going to speak to this because, as I've said before, it's important to consider these kinds of things because the majority in our circles, in our denomination, if you will, The majority of our favorite Reformed theologians, our favorite commentators, all the guys we're reading to prepare for our sermons and our teachings, a lot of these guys point to these texts, these household salvations, these household baptisms, to argue for why they baptized their infants. If you think about it, all all the Protestant Reformers that were teaching our kids about The Puritans, with very few exceptions, they all held to this position that that if there's any believing parent, 
the children should also be baptized. And when I say baptized, I mean sprinkled. Another obvious interesting problem. Um, now with Lydia's, with Lydia's household salvation in this section with the household baptism, in essence, I had a note here to say, if this was the only household baptism in the Bible, in essence, they might have, the Presbyterians might have a legitimate argument for assuming that this household, household baptism included infants. And why do I say that? Well, in this example that we just read from, from Lydia's household baptism, um, there's, there's other examples of household baptisms. We're actually going to look at all of them really quickly. Um, this is the only example where it says the household was baptized, the entire household. But this text, unlike all the other texts, doesn't include the fact that either the household who was baptized either um, had the word preached to them, believed the word, or rejoiced in the word that was preached to them. All these things that infants can't do, all the other texts speak to these realities. So I bring that up because I think it really does kind of kill the argument there um, concerning the assumption that these were infants. In all the other texts that we're going to look at here, when it says a whole family's baptized, that family, the text either says, believe the word, um, rejoiced at the word, these kinds of things. And these are things infants don't do, uh, with the obvious exception of who? Who rejoiced at the word as an infant? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that's an exception. With the exception of John the Baptist, when the Son of God appeared, he he rejoiced. So here's the other instances. There's, there's four in total. Um, I'm going to say these are worth turning to really quickly just so you guys um, aren't just taking my word for it in essence. But these are kinds of things I, I want you to have in your index specifically for this issue. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 10 quickly. Acts chapter 10, of course, is the first household baptism. This is with Cornelius. In his family, we already went through that text. I didn't make as much of it then. Acts chapter 10, look at verse 44. I'll read 44 through 48. It says, while Peter was still saying these things. Sorry, I still hear pages flipping. Acts 10, 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they, how did they know they received the Spirit? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. My point being, I don't think the infants were participating in the speaking in tongues and extolling of God. Peter then says, Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people 
who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So Peter's argument is, hey, these people received the Spirit just like we did. They're speaking in tongues. It's obvious. I, I don't think there's any way that could have uh, included the infants because the, the, the sign was the tongues and the extolling of God that would have excluded the infants. And because he saw this, it says he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, the second instance Go ahead and flip to uh, Acts 16. We're going to look at this one uh, a little more in depth once we get there. But the Philippian jailer, the Philippian jailer beginning in verse, let's say, uh, verse 31. It says here, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the whole household is called to believe. Verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Who were they speaking the word to? Well, I'm assuming they weren't preaching to the, to the babies. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed the wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family... Then he brought them out into the house and set food before them. And then verse 34, something else the babies can't, wouldn't have done. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so I don't think the, uh, the children would have engaged in all of those activities. Uh, verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 8, we have this. Shorter instance with Crispus, Acts 18, verse 8. I point to this one because it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Um, it explicitly says that the entire household believed. And so... All of these instances, uh, there's one more instance we won't turn to, I guess. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you remember, Paul references how he baptized the whole house of uh, Stephanus. And then later in 1 Corinthians, he says that uh, they were the first converts in Achaia. So he baptized those who were actually converts, which... This is the Baptist position, that we baptize those who believe, we baptize those who rejoice, we baptize those who are converts, not the uh, children of those who are these things. And all of these arguments that they're making, and, and let me caveat this, this is not the only argument the Presbyterians have are the household baptisms. They have, there's other passages to be dealt with, but I'm just here dealing with this household baptism argument. Um, if you think about it, even if you grant all of these household baptisms and say everybody there was baptized, believing or not believing, it's still an argument for silence because none of these passages say there was even infants in these households. Although it's probably safe to assume as many children as they had back then, but nowhere does the text actually even include um, infants in these households. So um, it's kind of another defeater to me if you ask so those are all the household baptism texts so in essence you've kind of seen them all but they all with the exception of Lydia include that those being baptized believed rejoiced 
had the word preached to them, heard the word, um, all of these things that infants can do. So that's all I'm going to say about that until we get back down to the Philippian jailer uh, later. So let's put the baptism question aside just for the time being. As we think about Lydia, um, surely the grace of God, surely the Spirit of God was doing the necessary work in her heart, in the hearts of her household. And unfortunately, as most of us are aware, wherever God is at work, the enemy is not far away. And so this next little section is kind of an intermission in between some, some household salvations. Um, a li- I think this is a little, maybe a small time later, verse 16. Paul is Paul here acting maybe a little, little while later after Lydia's salvation. Luke says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. I just put a pause in my notes here just so that we don't read too quickly past um, the reality of demon possession even in the life of this seemingly little girl, because when you read this, this is not kind of what I just referred to as the situation that we all live in prior to coming to Christ. It's not your typical being led by the prince of the power of the air like like we all were prior to salvation. Um, These kinds of demon possessions... It's not simply uh, the typical being influenced by Satan or the demons, but this is an instance of, of actually being indwelt by a demon. And when you read through the Gospels, especially even in the book of Acts, when you see all these instances in the Bible with, with Jesus, with his, in, with his apostles, when you see where these demons actually possess people, that the demon actually takes over the body, takes over the mind, takes over the voice. Um, It is one of the most, if you were to be in the presence of this, it would be one of the most terrifying realities that I think we as humans can experience, is to have a demon take over your your body and your mind and and to be using you. There's certainly demons all around us, there's certainly angels all around us, but to have that kind of interaction with the demonic, um, to see it manifesting itself like that is, is terrifying, would be terrifying. Um, I think, I'm assuming we've all had those discussions, especially living in Austin. You know, you see these guys, these women on the streets, you know, they're yelling into the air, um, and, and you wonder... You know, it, is, this, uh, is this demonic possession or, or, or is it some just mental disorder? Is it the drugs? Um, but one thing seems certain when you, when you read through the Bible, when you read through the Gospels, I was trying to brainstorm and think of an exception. 
But when you read through the Gospels and you see the instances of demonic possession, there doesn't seem to be any doubt in anyone's mind. It's never iffy. Um, Everyone knows, even when it's the instances where the demon just causes some sort of like uh, illness where or somebody is deaf or dumb or mute or whatever, even in those instances, the parents attribute and know my son or daughter has a, a, a spirit of muteness or these kinds of things. Everyone's Christians, non-Christians alike, everyone knows that person is demon possessed. There's not a question about it. Um, I just I just mentioned that um, in passing in a sense because that's always kind of stood out to me as we wonder, is this guy demon possessed? Is he not? The biblical cases don't seem to be like there's any any doubt about it. Now, when you when you even look, I'm saying it's the, it's the scariest reality that the demon is indwelling this child. Now, the very ironic thing here concerning demons, and it's not just here, as the other accounts as well in the Bible, the very ironic thing is that the demon's theology is always spot on. The demons have very good theology. The Bible says, even the demons believe, it says. And so if you think about this, I reacted to somebody's Facebook post recently making this point. That's why it came to my mind. Um, how, how evil of a belief is it to be an atheist? Not even the demons are atheists. Even the demons know and profess, they don't deny the existence of God. Not even the demons go that far. So how wicked is it to go beyond even the demonic to deny the reality of the God? Um, So as we see here, they have good theology. So this woman is under the possession of this demon. It's able to give her insight into other people's lives. It's able to bring profit to this girl's masters. And as a result, uh, verse 17, it says that she followed Paul and us crying out. And here's, her, here's, here's the demon's theology. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That sounds right. That sounds good. It says, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, you have to love the honesty of the Bible sometimes. I love the fact that it does not avoid saying things like, Paul was greatly annoyed, right? I think about even with Jesus, it says things, it quotes Jesus saying, how long must I put up with you? These these kinds of things. The Bible doesn't hide the reality of what I'm calling righteous annoyance in the apostles or even in Jesus. Paul is annoyed by this demon. And so Paul casts the demon out. 
Um, but there's consequences. There's consequences for Paul for casting out this demon. Look in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, I just want to stop again because this is crazy to me. I think we too often read too quickly uh, past what I call the insanity of sin, the insanity of unbelief. It's insane because if you notice, Paul casts out this demon that's in this woman and the owners don't think, the owners of this slave girl, they don't stop and think, wow, this, this man through this this man, Jesus, whom they are, are preaching and casting out this demon, this authority that they have over the demonic realm, um, maybe we should consider this Jesus. Maybe we should fear this Jesus. They don't think that. What their spiritually dead minds think about is, oh, no, we're going to lose some money. That's crazy to see somebody cast out a demon and yet all you can think about is losing money. You don't think, wow, in the name of Jesus, this demon is cast out effortlessly. Like, but that just shows you the it, sin makes no, no sense. You can't, it's not logical. It's illogical. It's, it's actually crazy. Sin is crazy. So what happens with Paul? It says they seize Paul and Silas. It says they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers it says when they had been brought uh, when and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, "These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice." So, this accusation here of of Paul and Silas advocating for these customs that are not lawful. The Bible doesn't describe exactly here what this is um, referring to. It doesn't define it. The commentators have these um, what we call educated guesses. Some point to the reality uh, that around this time, maybe prior to this instance, that uh, the Jews had been expelled out of the Roman provinces um, by Claudius, um, the Bible actually will mention that in Acts chapter 18. If you, if you recall when Paul meets uh, Priscilla and Aquila it's set in Corinth, it says they're in Corinth because they had been expelled. The Jews had been expelled out of Rome. So that was something that historically happened. And maybe, um, and some people ask the question, well, why didn't Timothy um, and Luke get arrested with them? Well, it, it may have something to do with Paul and Silas being full-blooded Jews, maybe they dressed more Jewish, um, maybe they sounded more Jewish uh, than Timothy and Luke, but for whatever reason, um, they are the one captured and thrown into jail. And, 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 you, and if you remember, in, the, in Rome, in the Roman provinces, Jews as well as Christians in the first century were accused of being atheists. That sounds strange, right, that the Jews and Christians would be called atheists? Well, 
to the Roman who believes in many, many gods, this whole um, pantheon of gods, to believe in just one God, you might as well be an atheist if you deny all the gods. So um, the religion, the teaching of Paul and Silas does not jive with that of these Roman citizens. In whatever the heart of this accusation against Paul and Silas, they throw them in jail. It's obviously just an excuse to get them in trouble because they've casted out this demon Verse 22, it says, The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the prison, into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so, wow, everything changed quickly for these brothers. One moment they're rejoicing that Lydia and her household has been saved, right? They found these women down by the river, everything. They're re certainly rejoicing. The next moment they're being beaten with rods. They're being thrown into prison. And so these missionaries, as with, as with all missionaries, must be ready to suffer and you must be ready to suffer well. And Paul and Silas do. They suffer well. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you remember back, a similar situation. Peter, the other apostles, um, they leave the prison there in Jerusalem after they were flogged, after they received the threats from the Sanhedrin. This is all back in Acts chapter 5. We're there after their beatings and imprisonment. It says that they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's, that's faith. That's faith to be able to suffer in such a way that you're rejoicing at, after these beatings, after these imprisonments. And so the scene here for Paul and Silas in this jail is that they're singing, they're praying, they're ministering to the Lord, and they're ministering to these other prisoners through their prayers and their singing. In verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So why is this jailer going to commits suicide due to the fact that he sees all the prison doors open. Well, again, similar situation with Peter back in Acts 12. Um, remember when Peter had been miraculously freed from prison, that angel pulled him out of prison. The Bible already told us why the prison guard would be doing this. Um, with, with Peter, in Peter's situation, it said, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers, 
as to what uh, could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they all be led away to execution. So part of the, uh, the deal, part of the job requirements for a Roman guard was that if you are given the responsibility to, to guard and watch over somebody in your prison, and if that prisoner escapes, whatever that prisoner's, um, whatever, he was, whatever punishment he was going to be dealt, if you let him escape, you would receive that punishment. That's pretty good motivation, right, to uh, keep those guys in the prison. And so this jailer decides he's going to commit suicide. Maybe it's just quicker. Maybe it's less painful. Maybe it's to avoid the shame of being executed for failing to guard his prisoners. So he's about to kill himself. But verse 28 says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And so although all the doors had been broken open, although somehow miraculously due to the shaking, every single prisoner's uh, chains had, had been broken off, yet it didn't kill or hurt the prisoners, somehow Paul, as well as all the prisoners, are still there. No one fled the open prison. And so God had certainly performed the miraculous and he did not have any of them escape for a, for a very important reason. But before we get to that reason, think about and consider, isn't it amazing that all the, these other prisoners didn't flee? Why didn't these, these other prisoners were not Christians that we know of? Um, they obviously could have, the, the prison must have been so destroyed that when the, the Philippian jailer saw the prison, he thought, surely everybody's gone, that the walls are knocked down. They could have all fled. Why did they stay with Paul and Silas? Well, I think the obvious assumption has to be that, that they realized um, that the miraculous had occurred, that they, they made the correlation between Paul and Silas, these men who were worshiping God, who had communicated enough truth about this God and their situation through the, through the hymns, through the prayers, that they realized they were involved in, in, in the midst of a miracle of God. The, the prison had been destroyed. No one was injured, yet they were free. It was an obvious miracle, and I think they must have considered and been convinced and, and swayed by the faithfulness of Paul and Silas to, to be suffering in prison and yet singing and yet praying to God. And I think this is a good example of how, how if we suffer well, we can have a sanctifying effect on, on unbelief in our world. And so the call is to suffer well. Glorify the Lord through your sufferings. By grace, the world will take notice of it. Well, as we, we know what's going to happen, we know the ultimate reason for why God performed this miracle, why he kept all the prisoners from running away. 
Verse 28 tells us, it says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? All of this earthquake, all of this opening of the jail cells, all of this releasing of the prisoners and yet keeping them, all of this is for the good of this Philippian jailer to bring him to repentance. And he asked this question, he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? That's the question that every missionary, every evangelist prays that people would respond with when we're preaching the gospel. That question comes from people who were, who were under conviction, under some true conviction. People who are saying, what must I do to be saved? These are people who understand rightly. They fear the judgment of God. They're convicted of their their need for forgiveness, for peace with God. These kinds of people who are saying, what must I do to be saved? They're not people who need to hear more law or need more conviction. These are the people who need the gospel. And that's how Paul and Silas answer the question. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. The answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul knows where do you send somebody? Where do you point someone who wants to be saved? You send them straight to the Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him as opposed to who most people are trusting in themselves. Trust in the Savior. The Spirit's been working in the book of Acts through the preaching of the apostles. This is not the first time somebody has asked that, that blessed question, what must I do to be saved? I did a quick survey back through um, the other times the apostles have been brought to give a response to people who are wanting to be saved. These are the responses, a few, just a couple of the responses that we've seen so far. Peter in Acts 2, the answer to what must I do to be saved is repent and be baptized. Peter in Acts chapter 3, repent and return so that your sins might be wiped away. Acts chapter 13, Paul, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. And so... What we see even so far halfway through the book of Acts, what, what is the language, what is the common language for responding to the gospel? It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. These two words used interchangeably, obviously insinuating it's, it's two sides of the same coin of genuine conversion. We turn from sin and self to Christ by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
verses 32 through 34. Here we see the reality that God was executing this whole series of miraculous events. As I said, for more than just the jailer's salvation, just as with Lydia, for his whole household as well. Verse 32 says, and they spoke of the and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so here's another example of what we looked at earlier, a household salvation, a household baptism. And hopefully as we read through this, these last couple of verses here, hopefully you picked up on some of those cues uh, that we mentioned earlier. If you didn't catch them again in verse 32... It says, the word was spoken to all who were in the house. Infants, question mark in my notes. Verse 34, his entire household rejoiced. Infants, question mark. So obviously the reference to these entire households, the the entire household is who the word was spoken to. The entire household is who uh, rejoiced. And I'm pretty sure if an infant would have leapt in, the, leapt in the womb, Luke would have mentioned it just like he did with John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. So another household is saved. Paul's as well as the other prisoners' faithfulness. I include the other prisoners because they were faithful to stay. It seems to have made an oppression on the Philippian officials. Uh, They've realized they've acted too rashly by throwing Paul and Silas in jail. Uh, Let's read this last little section because now they want to free them. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Again, the Bible's not shying away from... Paul just keeping it real at times. It didn't neglect his rejection of John Mark, which came across as harsh when we read that section. It doesn't shy away from mentioning him being annoyed by the demon-possessed girl. Now Luke doesn't fail to include Paul's sharp reaction to these magistrates who have unjustly treated him and Silas. And the Bible just does not sugarcoat all of these things, and you have to appreciate that about the Bible. It, it speaks about these real men with their real reactions. What's the reaction from the police and the magistrates? Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid 
when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now, why were the magistrates all of, all of a sudden afraid? Well, because Paul had said that they're Roman citizens. And there's a law, a Roman law against imprisoning or beating Roman citizens without a trial. And as we know, Paul appeals later. He, he states that he's a Roman citizen by birth. And to, to imprison or beat a Roman citizen without trial is punishable by death. And so the magistrates are afraid. They messed up. They assumed probably because they were Jews that they're not Romans, but they both were Romans. And so we see Paul knows the law. Paul appeals to the Roman law. And he felt, for whatever reason, inclined to hold these officials. He holds their feet to the fire for the rash mistreatment of him and Silas. Well, last verse, Paul Paul does finally leave, leave the prison. Verse 40, it says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So that closes our section for today. And what did we see? Well, we saw two amazing conversions in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is famous for these conversions with Lydia, the Philippian jailer, also for the salvation of their households, their entire households being saved. And what can we say by application from these texts? Well, notice in these two salvations how, how differently the Spirit worked in both of these cases. In the first case, you see the Spirit quietly, gently, imperceptibly uh, working inside of Lydia's heart. It says he opened up her heart to hear the message of the Apostle Paul. And the, and the Spirit graciously opens up her heart to, to hear the preaching of the Word. In the second case, the Spirit came with a thunderous earthquake, shaking the ground, breaking a, breaking a prison down, breaking people free from their chains, uh, nearly causing the uh, Philippian jailer to commit suicide, and then at the last moment, granting him salvation as well as his whole household. And so, as you think about these cases, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 3, where where now we see when you put both together that the Spirit not only blows where He wishes, but He also blows how He wishes. The only way to know that the Spirit is truly blown on a person is to look for the results, is to look for the fruit. And what do we see the Spirit producing? The Spirit produces repentance, and faith, both are explicitly said to be gifts of God's grace. And what's the first fruit that we see in these texts? What's the first fruit that we see in keeping with repentance? Well, the first fruit is baptism. Baptism. If you believe yourself to be a Christian and have yet to be baptized, you've yet to even keep the very first commandment of Christ. 
And I say commandment of Christ because baptism didn't begin with the apostles. The very first words from Jesus Christ, the Lord. So the Son of God comes to earth to preach. And the first thing he says when he begins his preaching is repent and be baptized. The first thing. So why do you call him Lord and not do what he says? Repent and be baptized. Household salvations, household baptisms, that obviously is the desire of all of our hearts that our whole households would be saved, that they would be baptized. We desire our homes to be full of Christians. This is without a doubt, and I've spoken to every man here, and I know it's true, surely true of every woman, is that the sole desire for all of us, for our children, is that our children will be saved far and above anything else. We could care less if our children are rich, successful, popular, famous, married, unmarried, even healthy. Our sole desire is that our families are saved because if we had confidence that our children were saved, we would be so less worried about their future. In a, in, in a sense, we would be content with whatever the Lord brought for our children if we knew that we would be with them forever in heaven, if we knew that they had peace with God. It doesn't matter if our children went on to be wealthy, successful, happy as they could be. If they're not saved, we will. when we look at our children, we would mourn for them. We would be sad for them that they haven't come to Christ. So that these texts should give us hope that God saves families, he saves households, and the call is the same as it was then, the call is the same now, repent and be baptized. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, you know what we need to hear, you in your infinite wisdom, Lord, have given us pictures of household salvations, household baptisms, Lord. We, we don't see as many of these as we wish we could, Lord. We confess, Lord, that as I was saying earlier, Lord, I, I think what has been lost, Lord, is our society has left a following after the leaders of, the, of our families, Lord, whether it's fathers, whether there's households like Lydia without a husband, Lord, the, the leaders are not followed anymore, Lord. Another obvious reason for that, Lord, is we're not the leaders we should be. Lord, so we have failed in these ways, Lord, to be those who, who, who look like those who need to be followed, Lord. But, Lord, we pray you would use us in such a way, Lord, that our whole families would desire to follow the God that, that we follow, Lord, and have mercy on us as we attempt to lead, have mercy on our families as, as they should follow Lord, grant 
Grant your spirit, Lord, to our entire families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.